Um, I've previously do, been doing a series on um, Psalm 73, and before that I was looking at um, Exodus 3 and the calling of Moses. And I've skipped forward to Numbers 11 because it's something I've been doing um, in my quiet times, but also because um, it's something that quite surprised me. And hence the title of today's sermon, A Surprising Reaction. And we're all pretty familiar with the ten plagues that God sent on Egypt in Exodus. We're familiar with the way that God commanded Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go. And he didn't, he refused and God brought the plagues on him. And we can vividly picture the crossing in the Red Sea, over the Red Sea, and the amazing power that God displayed in um, rescuing the Israelites. We can picture the utter sovereignty of God uh, throughout all these dramatic events in this period of Israel's history, and the rescue that God effected. But what happened afterwards and how did the people of Israel respond towards God after their rescue from Egypt? So as we look on these events leading up to the passage in Numbers 11, and what happened before this passage, I'd just like to reflect and think, think about the, the reaction of the Israelites, as, as we'll see, and how, how we would have reacted. And that... Sort of the thrust really is the inability of anybody to turn to God without God's help and the need for the new covenant in Christ. Why are we so dependent on Jesus? We know in the New Testament we have lots of passages telling us to repent and turn to him for forgiveness and also our sinfulness before God. But it's only as we look back at the Old Testament, we see the, the reason pictured in people's accounts and stories. Israel is a giant picture of what takes place and the need for salvation and salvation itself. And it does it in a way that's some, in some ways more vivid than the New Testament describes. Because the New Testament is more summarized. Well, our first point is a history that couldn't be more privileged. A history that couldn't be more privileged. Um, if we turn back in our Bibles to Exodus 15, we're going to go through the chapters from Exodus 15 to Numbers 11 very briefly um, to arrive at where the people were <clears throat> in Numbers 11, where they were spiritually. So in Exodus 15... The people had just come across the Red Sea and they'd witnessed God's mighty power in rescuing them. Yet immediately they grumbled against Moses when they found no water. In Exodus 16, the Lord started the provision of manna because they'd grumbled about having no food and God gave them manna. This is the first place that he does it. Um, that they could make into bread and other meals. And he also provided quail on this occasion. <coughs> they were given instructions about gathering manna and only to, to eat it all and dispose of it the same day, else it would have rotted the next day and where they received another batch. But they didn't listen and disobeyed and left it overnight, so it rotted. 
And they also went out on the Sabbath to gather manna when they were specifically instructed not to because God gave a double portion on the previous day. And then the people of Israel have a dramatic encounter with God as we move towards Exodus 19 before the giving of the commandments. And as we come into Exodus 19, we see in verse 8 that God is preparing them and the people respond saying, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Well, then there are some frightening or inspiring scenes as the Lord descended onto Mount Sinai. On the mount there was thunder and lightning, thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast that made them tremble. And the mount was wrapped in smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire, and the whole mountain trembled, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, and Moses spoke, and the Lord answered him in thunder. The people of Israel will have been in no doubt as to the reality and presence of God. They must have been terrified at this sight and at the sound and the trumpets growing louder and louder. And then the commandments are given in Exodus 20. A little later in Exodus 23, uh, God commands them, pay attention to all that I've said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. And then in Exodus 23, verse 20, there is a specific promise and command regarding the angel of the Lord in the, in the pillar of cloud, which prefigures the um, <clears throat> pillar of cloud and by day and fire by night, leading the people of Israel through the wilderness. Behold, verse 20 says, I send an angel before you to guard you on your way and bring you to the place that I prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. The angel is later identified with God's own presence in the pillar of cloud and fire by night. Uh, commentators don't know whether it's, well, many say it's a theophany of Christ, the pillar of cloud and of fire. And others say it's an angel, um, but it's always linked to God himself, linked to the presence of God. And whichever it is, it was a visually striking and constant reminder to the people of Israel that God is with them. Uh, we see later on that... Um, as they set off, uh, as they break camp in, in numbers, we see that they're only allowed to set off when the pillar of cloud ascends from the tabernacle and moves off. And if it doesn't, then they have to wait. So they're visually aware of the presence of God in a striking manner. Just imagine the pillar of cloud, uh, a fire burning over them on a night over the camp and over the tabernacle. They couldn't be in any doubt that this holy, um, awesome, powerful God was above them, not only protecting them, but leading them as they had to follow the uh, cloud as it set out and as it rested for each evening. 
They could only start and stop whenever the cloud left and stopped. So the people of God were visually and closely shepherded and led by the living God in a dramatic way. And following the dramatic events at Sinai and giving the law, the people affirm their acceptance of the covenant God's made with them. We're in Exodus 24 now. Moses made a sacrifice of a number of oxen and sprinkled half the blood over the altar and half the blood over the people, signifying cleansing from sin so that people might enter the covenant with God. And it's striking that they knew that the ultimate penalty for breaking the covenant was death. So as the blood was sprinkled, the blood of a slain, slain oxen, they understood that that signified a very serious covenant with God, so serious that if they broke that covenant, then they would die. And the people responded to the initiation of this covenant with verse 3 of 24. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then again in verse 7 of Exodus 24, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. Well, will they? We'll see later. So as Moses went back up the mountain, uh, in verse 17 of Exodus 24, they saw the appearance of the glory of the Lord like a devouring fire as God talked to Moses on Mount Sinai. The more visual imagery and more displays of the power of God um, to the Israelites. On Exodus 25 to Exodus 31, instructions are given on the construction of the tabernacle and how the priesthood's going to operate. And in these chapters, every person was asked to contribute to the building of the tabernacle. So they were asked to contribute precious metals, gold, silver, bronze, and so on. And also fabric for the covering of the tabernacle, you know, all the goat skins and the other precious materials that were used. And so they were actively in all the people, not just the priests, but all the people were involved in the worship of God and in their contribution towards building the tabernacle. The tabernacle itself was laid out to emphasize the holiness of God because there was the most holy place and right at the core of it. And then the, around it, uh, the holy place, the, holy, the most holy place, the high priest could go, only enter once per year on the Day of Atonement. And the holy place was where the priest ministered and entered and performed sacrifices. And it was only outside of that in the general court that the normal people, the non-priests, could gather to worship. So there was striking visual um, reminders of God, both in his powerful leading through the cloud and the, the fire on the mountain and the, holy, the emphasis on holiness in the layout of the tabernacle. <clears throat> There's all these um, reminders and pointers to, to God and his character. And the people were given the covenants there, as we've just looked at, with the sprinkling of the blood, and they promised to obey, and they were given the system of the worship and the priesthood. Yet, when we come back to the first bit of narrative in Exodus, they fell at the first hurdle 
because Exodus 32 records the making of the golden calf. Um, I've talked about it before and I don't really want to go into it, but just to summarize, to say that when Moses was up the mountain with God, then Aaron was leading them in building a golden calf and worshipping that and engaging in immorality. So the first bit of narrative, you know, an account, story of what the people were actually doing rather than giving of law or building tabernacle, and this is what happens. Well, Exodus continues all the way to the end with vivid pictures of God and with the closeness of God to Moses. Everyone who sought the Lord, they went, went to the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting was a temporary place until the tabernacle was completed. Whenever Moses went to the tent, all the people would rise up and watch from the door of their tent. And when Moses entered the tent of meeting, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak to Moses. And this encounter would, would be so moving and that the people would rise up and worship as they saw the Lord descend and speak to Moses. Exodus tells us that the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So all the... This was not going on in the background. All the people of Israel could see Moses as he talks with God. The pillar was God himself, the presence of God, visibly um, there. And they could see Moses speaking to him. And God said to Moses, my presence will go with you. I will give you rest. And then Moses instructs the people. So there's the holiness of the tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrifices, um, the rescue from Egypt, and everything that shows the people of Israel they are so loved and cared for, and also the mightiness of God and the fact that God is holy and not to be messed with or disobeyed. If they break the covenant, they were to be put to death. And there's this visual they're not representations because they actually happen. They're not symbols because they're actual encounters. As Moses talked to God, his face shone. It actually shone. And it made the Israelites afraid. So they could be in, in no doubt that there is a living God alive and with them in the camp. And that living God who's brought them out of Egypt is with them every step of the way. Exodus finishes with the tabernacle being finished and the cloud moving into it. And it says, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Then we move into the book of Numbers and these privileges and experiences of God's care and his might and his sovereignty and his holiness continue. In Numbers 3, the, a whole tribe or a twelfth of the nation of Israel's men were set aside for the priesthood, the, the Levites, and the ministry of God. The twelfth of the whole nation of men were given a task of looking after the ministry of God and worshipping. So God's holiness and the worship of God was extremely important in the life of Israel. Numbers 4 to 8 demonstrate the care and provision that God makes for carrying and looking after the tabernacle it might just seem like admin, but caring for the things of God with the right respect and worship is important to God. 
Uh, Numbers 9 deals with the sacrifices and offerings that are to be made for day-to-day issues and the importance of purity amongst the priest and the people. Actually, in Numbers 8, God had commended the Levites for doing all that he had commanded. So they'd, they'd started out well. We'll move on to uh, the second point, a surprising reaction. Coming into Numbers 11, we look at the text. Immediately, the people complained. And this is the first part of real narrative. Sorry, in Numbers, they had that narrative bit in Exodus, which was about the golden calf incident, and then lots of more... Um, detail about the tabernacle and its building and and the worship and again in numbers there's the genealogies and the proper worship but not really narrative of what happens to Israel and really numbers 10 it talks about departure from Sinai but really immediately what's recorded is in chapter 11 now when the people complained it displeased the Lord for the Lord heard it and his anger was aroused So the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some in the outskirts of the camp. The people cried out to Moses. And in verse 4, the the rabble, the mixed multitude, they were those that came along from out of Egypt with Israel. They weren't Israelites. They were associated nations, perhaps some Egyptians and other nations who came out with the Israelites. But they had a craving for food And it infected the Israelites, and they also had a craving, verse 4. And they yielded to it, and they wept. Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlics. But now we're dried up, and there's nothing except this awful manna before our eyes. They wept as they remember it. I think they've forgotten that they were slaves and they were beaten in Israel. They've forgotten the harshness of it, making them cry out to God. They they forget all that. You know, they're on journey rations now. They just need to keep their eye on on his provision of God. They're on a journey to Canaan. This wasn't the life they were um, going to be living. This wasn't what God had intended permanently. Their eyes ought to have been on Canaan, this is just journey rations. So against all this backdrop of the visually striking presence of God, the cloud over the tabernacle, the fire over the tabernacle by night, the routine where they only set out when God directs, they're directed by silver trumpets for breaking camp, that's Numbers 10. They're summoned by trumpets to meet together. Everywhere, both in the organization they're led by God at every way and they're given visual images of God everywhere yet still the people complained in the hearing of God they rebelled against God and God was right there therefore God's anger was kindled and his fire burned among them verse 10 says the anger of God blazed hotly and Moses was displeased he heard the people weeping and he, he takes it personally. It's too much to bear. This people of 600,000 men, about 2 million people in total, weeping, uh, rebelling against him, complaining. Why have you given me 
You know, why have you given us this rubbish to eat? We had melons and leeks in Egypt. How ungrateful they were. And Moses feels the burden of it and says, why have you given me the burden of this people? Did I conceive them? Am I, I am not able to carry them alone for it's too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, kill me at once. At first it seems that Moses is being um, sulky, but he's not. It's just an immense burden with all these people on it. And he's, he's desolate, disheartened. But God, you see later on in verse, after verse 16 that God looks after him and appoints elders to, to help him. But this will be a surprising reaction to, to many people not familiar with the Bible. You know, imagine uh, people's reaction who are, you know, your friends who don't know the Bible, or are not Christians, not interested in church, you know, who think that people are inherently good and there are just some bad apples like criminals or religious zealots like the Taliban. But what we read in the Bible <coughs> is that people aren't naturally good with a few faults. They're naturally and inherently evil with an inherited sinful nature. But even that is such a shock when they've had all those privileges just described of the provision of God, the worship, the temple, rather the tabernacle, the way God looked after them, the way God appeared to them and showed them. And he showed himself to everybody speaking to Moses face to face. And yet right in front of God, they rebel and complain because they haven't got enough to eat or they haven't got the right food to eat. It's a surprising reaction. Our rebellion against God is, is so surprising. But we all have this sinful nature in us this, that tends towards rebellion against God and self-interest. And it, it was in each of them and in each of us all the time, not just sometimes. You know, the people, it's so surprising, the people were told explicitly um, back in Exodus, you shall not criticize uh, God nor curse a ruler of your people. Yet that's exactly what they did. In Numbers 12, in the next chapter, Aaron and Miriam, Miriam rebel against God. They say, why is Moses a leader? Uh, he's useless. And God um, judges them and punishes them. But they were told, you shall not revile, or, which means criticize in an insulting way a ruler over you or God. Yet that's exactly what they did. Even Aaron and Miriam did it. The New Testament speaks about them. In 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 6. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. This is Christ, the presence of God led them and followed them and protected them. But verse 5 says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness these things took place as an example for us that we may not desire evil as they did so the new testament condemns them they all ate the same spiritual food yet they rebelled and they displeased god and therefore were overthrown 
in the, in the desert. Only two survived from that generation, Caleb and Joshua, after the 40 years of wandering. That's getting ahead of ourselves in numbers. <clears throat> but they didn't get off. They were killed by God because they rebelled. You know, is anyone offended by being called a sinner? Are you offended? Well, the Bible says that the heart is desperately wicked. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's in Jeremiah 17. None is righteous, Romans 3 says in these famous verses. No one, no one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You know, we're all in the same boat. Our shock at the Israelites is, is rightly placed. It's unbelievable that they rebelled the way they did. But also, we should be alarmed at the sin in our own lives and our own rebellion against God. Whether it's <clears throat> attitudes or um, heart issues or have bad habits or whatever it is. You know, we should be outraged at the sin and offence to God that we often do because we have been saved from all that. God has given himself for us in the, in the person of Christ. And yet sometimes we still sin. We still rebel against him as they did. And that's shocking given that all that God has done for us. We see why that's more shocking because our third point is a superior privilege. A superior privileged we're not in the same position as the Israelites because they were under the old covenant of law. But we are under a better covenant. And we thank God there's a better solution to our rebellion than simply obedience to law. If it was obedience to law, then we all would have failed probably already this morning. But there's a hint in Exodus 23. I read a verse um, in the first point where Moses sacrificed a number of oxen and he's sprinkled the blood half on the altar and half on the people to signify the deathly seriousness of a covenant with God and with breaking it. Well, Jesus fulfills that for, for us at the Last Supper under the New Covenant. Matthew 26 says, Jesus said, This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sin. This forgiveness of sin is not obtained by trying hard or obedience to law. But if we go on to Hebrews 8 that we read earlier, where it talks about the new covenant, and verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. We now are under a better covenant. And thank God for it. In those days, many died. That whole generation died in the wilderness. When uh, there was Korah's rebellion later on in about Numbers 22 or 23, Korah was also a Levite, and him and his fellow elders thought they could do a better job than Moses. And God opened up the ground beneath them and swallowed them and their whole families. There were a number of rebellions. God sent plagues on them when the people complained. He, de he destroyed them. And it was only 
Moses' intervention on a number of occasions that uh, stopped God from destroying all the Israelites and starting again with Moses and his family. But thankfully, we're not under that covenant, or else none, none of us would stand. Remember, only really Joshua and Caleb stood and went forward into the promised land out of two million, them and their families and the young ones. That whole generation died out. But God will renew our hearts under the new covenant and incline us and transform us. Ezekiel says that he has taken out our heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. He's, given, he's put his spirit into our, into our hearts so that we can believe in God. He has enabled us to repent and believe. He has, uh, Ephesians tells us that we have died to sin and been made alive to Christ. Everything has, is outside of ourselves. It's God who has come into our lives and called us to repentance. God has inclined our hearts that used to hate God and not care for him. He's inclined us to, be, to believe in him and to be desolate for our sin and to be sorry for our sin. It is God who has done this. It's not us. The new covenant is so much better. The old covenant... Hebrews 9 verse 9 tells us, could never cleanse our conscience. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshipper, but only drink, deal with food and drink and various offerings and regulations imposed until the time of reformation. So under the old covenant, they could be ritually clean, but never have a clean conscience about things. I mean, that's awful. You know, well, I remember in my own life when I've done uh, epic things wrong and rebellion against God. But having a clean conscience when we turn to him and ask his forgiveness, there's nothing like it. Having that weight lifted off us, having the conscience cleanse and the guilt removed from us, there's nothing like it. It's utter freedom. People look for freedom today, but forgiveness is the ultimate freedom, such a, a blessing from God towards us that we can be right with him and be at peace with him and not be, be um, borne down by guilt at what we've done in the past. We can truly let it go. How amazing the, the new government having our conscience cleansed and guilt removed. Hebrews 9 says... The, the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience and from dead works to serve the living God. How awful it would be to think that, you know, we can never make atonement for things. You know, there are people that have done awful things and they'll, 60, 70 years later, they'll never feel forgiven. They'll never forgive themselves and perhaps other people will never forgive them. But only, only in Christ can we be forgiven for those sins? Only in him, for things done 50 years ago, can we be, uh, be forgiven and have our conscience entirely clear? Because we've asked God to forgive us, and he's paid the penalty for our sin. We don't need to bear it anymore, to be dragged down by it and beat ourselves up over it, because he has died for our sin. Hebrews 10 tells us it's once for all, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who have been sanctified. You know, 
for any sin. There's no need to go back to God for it, however bad it is, however horrendous it is. When we ask God sincerely to forgive us and that we're sorry for our sin and that we've rebelled against him and that we've ignored him and done everything possible to avoid coming to him, then when we ask for his forgiveness, he will forgive us. He's guaranteed because his death guarantees it. His death died for all sins in the past, present, and future. For a single offering, he is perfected for all time those who have been sanctified. And when you've been forgiven, there's no need to go back and ask again because we are perfected in Christ. His death was so perfect. His burden so awful and terrible and terrifying. It's the wrath of God on him that it was perfectly accounted for. We may never have to revisit it again. It's gone. This is the privilege that's superior, the new covenant that we're under. So in conclusion, sin is surprising and shocking, especially when we think of our own sin. But God's new covenant gives us a new heart that believes in him and then we can enjoy his presence forever, like Moses talked face to face with God at the door of his tent. We have Moses' privilege. We can talk to God like that and know his reality in our hearts because of Christ. Amen.